This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So I don't know that I could call this a Christmas message, which is, I guess, classic Eric, that if there's a holiday coming around the corner, I never think about it uh, when I'm preparing. I mean, it's a weird thing. I have to admit that Easter Sunday, I'm usually very aware, but you would think I would be totally aware. This is Christmas time, but when I was preparing for this, it wasn't even in my head. I know that sounds terrible, and it's not because I don't care about Christmas. I do. Uh, It's just that When God is working things in my soul, that's what I'm focusing on, and I don't just take holidays and try and force fit a message around them. So even though this will have some Christmassy uh, fragrance to it, uh, it's almost like we're taking a message and spraying some, you know, blue spruce fragrance on it, uh, as opposed to it being a Christmas message. And I think it's going to be still very, very encouraging and edifying because that's technically what Christmas is all about. It's about God giving us what we need so that we can live well. We can live with triumph. We can live with grace. Readiness for triumph. <clears throat> I like it. I like it. Proverbs five eighteen through 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth and be ravished always with her love. Now, some of you are saying, this definitely is not a Christmas message. (laughs) Now, it's interesting because none of us really struggle with such a command as that. Isn't it funny? There are certain commands that are like, oh, wow, that's a heavy one. This one is one that there are many of us, especially the single people in here, like, yeah, amen. I'm ready to do that, Lord. Right now, just help me out a little. And yet there's something about this that I want to sort of unpack And that is that God desires us to be blessed in our life, which is a a dangerous thing to state in the modern church because people have taken that and run off with it and health, wealth, and prosperity. And yet, there is something that he desires to build in our life, and it's not meant to just be for a moment. It's not meant to just be for a season. It's meant to be for all time. It's the old happily ever after thing. You know where that comes from? That comes from the kingdom of heaven not from Hollywood, not from Disney. It comes from the kingdom of heaven, happily ever after. Isn't that just a fascinating statement? However, most Christians don't find it. I know that sounds terrible. Part of it has to do with the makeup of the modern church. But many of us know and esteem the grand life, and we esteem the beauty. And even that uh, scripture in Proverbs 5, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth and be ravished always with her love. It's like, oh, that just sounds wonderful. That's what I want forever and always. And yet that doesn't necessarily mean that we've found it. And that's part of what I want to unpack today is there's a breakdown in how we are living out Christianity with a high ideal, but actually the function and the, the work that needs to go in to produce that amazing triumph is sometimes missing. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, he gave himself for it. You know, when you're young and single, 
this is, when you hear a scripture like that, it's like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. The problem is when you're old and married, sounds terrible, doesn't it? And someone brings up a scripture like this, it can be a rebuke. Because sometimes we know it, we, we see it in scripture, but we don't perform it in our life. And that discrepancy is very, very significant. Uh, a lot of people today in Christianity are very sensitized to doctrinal heresy. And it's like, oh, they'll divide and they'll have all sorts of, it's where denominations come from. But they're not always sensitive to what we could call behavioral heresy. Where it's like, they'll believe that that is true doctrine. They'll believe that in their theology that Christ is, you know, as a husband is to a wife, Christ is to the church or the inverse. And they'll believe it, they'll have it accurate, but that doesn't mean they live it. And wouldn't you rather live it than just esteem it? And so many of us in Christianity have fallen into this weird place of esteeming all the grand statements of Scripture, but not performing them in our lives. There is, if you, if you were to break down the, 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 the layout of Scripture, you have the Old Testament and then you have this epicenter. And it happens right at the beginning of the New Testament, but you could separate, or separate it out and, and make it its own thing, and that's Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel accounts. So that Malachi is going to lead up to this, and then there's going to be 400 years of silence, and then boom, Jesus steps onto the stage and performs his amazing work. He, he dies three days later, he resurrects, and he ascends to be with the Father, and wow, that is the epicenter of all Scripture. But then it doesn't finish there. It actually has something else that follows. And I, that, that is actually going to be important in this because I'm going to break down that, that process of producing this grand life into three stages. You see, the Old Testament is actually very significant to understanding the cross. And yet many people, have you ever seen the people that just carry around the New Testament? And they oftentimes don't understand that the New Testament only has its validity in the fact that it, there, it matches perfectly with the Old Testament. It builds upon something. And just to celebrate the work of the cross and to believe, a lot of Christians, will, you know, people will come forward at some service, you know, bend their knee, pray a prayer, and yet the follow-up from their life doesn't seem to demonstrate the fact that anything really happened here. And you see, the, the gospel is based on the premise that that which is before Christ is that which establishes the importance of Christ, but then that which is after Christ is that which empowers us to live out what he came to accomplish for us. All three of those stages become very, very important. The Pharisee represents someone who knew the Old Testament and had all the doctrine and all the theology down and then blew it when Christ arrived. Well, that's the last thing we want to do is have all of this energy go into the, the, what we were going to call the pre-production and then miss the Messiah when he arrives. Boy, that's a bad idea. So we're going to call it the raw desire versus the desired outcome. So the fact that you have a desire to have a wonderful marriage, for instance, if we could just call it that. Uh, by the way, could we set up another a row of chairs in the back there? Uh, but the fact that we have a desire, let's say as young people in here, for a great marriage doesn't necessarily mean that it automatically translates into a great marriage 
because we had the desire for one. And that's what I'm going to say is the difference between the raw desire. If I started tapping into you and I said, what's your desires? The fact that you have those desires doesn't necessarily mean a guaranteed outcome. You see, there's something else that needs to be put into the mix. The desire for a specific outcome is important, but that desire must be combined with real-world action and obedience. So this is, I'm just giving some premise points because there's a few of you in here that will recognize some of the thoughts that I'm going to have, especially those of you that were on the film set with me these past three weeks. See, I, I'm not a, a film guy in the classic sense, and I've had to learn a lot over the past three weeks. There's a whole language uh, for film sets uh, that I don't know. And, well, I should say I didn't know. Not that I really know it now, because the way I use it isn't always correct either. Uh, and I don't even want to go into any illustrations, because the main illustration I come to is what you're supposed to say when you're going to the bathroom, and I don't think that's appropriate for church. But the raw desire versus the desired outcome. We all in here desire a certain outcome in our lives. So if I were to say, okay, for marriage, what do you desire? Well, happily ever after. I mean, heaven come to earth, of course. Intimate communication, warmth of affection always. You know, the, the devil's not able to get in there and break you apart. Yes, that's what we desire. However, the fact that you have that desire to gain that outcome is a battlefront. To actually see that happen means there is going to be something inputted into your life. There is an action. You can't just hear, you must do. Luke 14, 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? In the film side of things, there's this whole side of making a film. Like when I think of making a film... I think of, you know, whatever amount of time that they're on this set, you know, and they have the cameras and they go, rolling, cut. Yeah, I've heard that quite a bit. There's a few of you in here that are like saying it in your sleep right now. And there, th that's what we would look at as making a film. However, before you make that film, there is actually a lot more that has gone into it. And I, I remember one guy saying, for every minute of film, you at least have a day of pre-production. And so uh, that's, that's a lot. I mean, if it's a 120-minute film, that's like 120 days of pre-production? Whoa! You see, there's a lot that goes into making that work. And it's, in a sense, counting the cost. Because on a film, you're going to be burning cash very quickly, and you need to make sure that you're ready for that day. And so for which of you, intending to build a movie, oh, it doesn't say that. It says, to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. James 1, 23 and then through 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So, we are vulnerable as modern Christians to hearing and not doing. I think the moment we actually can put our finger on that, it helps us. Because there are times, for instance, that I have recognized that God has sensitized me to uh, the issues of, let's say, uh, adoption and orphan help, okay? And there are times when I, am, I just have a theology that is correct, and there's a time when I have an activated soul where I'm like, I'm ready to do something. Two very different things. I've had, ac I've had accurate theology in my life with no action. 
where I'm a hearer, if you want to say it that way, and not a doer. And then I've had other seasons where I go into doing mode. And it's like, okay, if this is true, then my life needs to do something about it. And then I can go back to hearing mode. It's the weirdest thing. Where it's just like, yes, and you know, good theology would state that we need to visit the orphan and the widow in their distress. James, you know, 127. And, you know, we have it all down, and yet we go from hearing to doing mode, and then back to hearing mode, and then some of us get awakened again, and we go back to doing mode. Obviously, we all desire to be in doing mode constantly. The church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be permanently in doing mode. What we want to do is turn the switch on to doing mode, and then stick like a piece of tape over it so it locks the, you know, the trigger in place in doing mode. Oh, by the way, look at the end of this. But a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. I don't know how many of you want to live your life without that blessing. But what is the key? There is a doing that is important. Making a film. You can learn a lot about the Christian life by doing it. So that's basically a summation of my past three weeks. I'm constantly analyzing what is happening in the making of a movie, and I'm intrigued. And two weeks ago, you heard a message called The Film Crew, and you can go back and listen to that if you want, and get some more meditations and musings that I've had. But I've learned a lot about the Christian life. There's some fascinating thoughts that have come out. So it's broken into three different parts. Pre-production, which is just the work that goes on before what we know is the production. A movie production being on set, the cameras rolling, you know, all that type of stuff that seems really fun. That's just the production. And then we have post-production and after. And most of the work in a film is not just done in production. It's done before and after. And that's sort of shocking to most of us. I mean, some of us know that you have to add like a movie score to it and maybe edit it. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I know that those things happen, but they happen in like behind closed doors somewhere. And so when you don't see it, you don't really understand and appreciate. The same is true with the Christian life. Pre-production happens behind closed doors and no one really knows it's happening. And yet if it's not happening, you really do know it, hap it didn't happen when you get to production. And the same is true in the Christian life. When that trial comes and lands in your life, did you have pre-production in place so that you're ready for it? Did you count the cost for this? Because I thought you said you wanted to live out the robust, triumphant Christian life, but what were you doing in this whole time beforehand? You see, you had this whole period of time to prepare and to ready yourself for this day. What were you doing? So not truly understanding pre. So you'll notice here, pre, pro, and post. That's what I'm gonna call these, okay? So not truly understanding pre. Okay, I'm just going to go on record and say, in not having a background in movie making, Eric Ludi didn't fully understand pre-production. Okay, I understand pre-production in other areas, but not necessarily in film. And so this was sort of a crash course in it. It's funny because we originally had a family vacation set for the middle of this production. So we tried to figure out where to move it. So we moved it right before the production started. So at the very time when I probably should have been helping out uh, in the pre-production, uh, Eric was in Florida. And I didn't know, I didn't really understand. Of course, everyone was very gracious knowing that Eric is learning, right? But it's like, where's, where's Eric, where's Eric? Eric's in Florida right now. It's like, well, I didn't know. I 
wasn't supposed to be in Florida. No one told me. But that's the way many of us are as Christians. We don't realize that we're not supposed to be in Florida during pre-production. We're actually supposed to be working and preparing for the production. So the Ludi family packs in all their travel so as to be ready for pro. So I am trying to be ready for pro. So I'm taking a break right now so that I'm ready for pro. Eric, you're supposed to be working right now so that you're ready for pro. The unique question, there'll be a few people in here that might recognize this question. My good friend, this is a statement from someone. My good friend did all the purity stuff right prior to his wedding, but his marriage totally stinks. How do you explain that to all of us single folk? Isn't that an interesting statement? Imagine doing all the purity stuff. I'm going to put quotes around purity stuff. Imagine putting quotes around that and just saying, okay, someone does all the purity stuff right. You know, and they don't touch a member of the opposite sex, don't even really look at them, uh, save their kiss for, for the wedding day. I mean, they do it all right. I mean, they're totally set apart and they're not uh, blemishing this whole thing called... Uh, pre-marriage relationship, right? Then they get married. How could that go bad? I mean, if you've done all of that correct, shouldn't that equate to a great marriage? Well, that's like saying to the Pharisees, well, the fact that you cleansed and washed yourself all the time and did everything just right, it should lead to you recognizing the Messiah, right? It should lead to a robust Christian life after he comes. It doesn't equate to that always because there are other things other than just purity involved in readying someone for a great marriage. The perfect script. So let's imagine that purity and the perfect script are sort of the same. Okay, you can have a perfect script for a movie. And by the way, that's very valuable because there's not a lot of good scripts out there, right? So if you have a great script that doesn't necessarily equate to a great movie, it should, right? In our minds, it should, but it doesn't always. Why? Imagine having a wonderful movie script, but no pre before you go to pro. What would the post look like? So the marriage that comes out of a wedding day that didn't have the right pre, even though in our mind, it's like, well, we had enough. We had the script. Yeah, but having the script is not sufficient to what is needed to prepare a movie set to produce something truly magical. There is more to it than just the script. Three zones of triumph, so pre, pro, and post. There is no triumph without all three functioning properly. See, I know this in regards to life, the Christian life. I know this in regards to marriage, but it was interesting realizing how much I didn't recognize this in film. Sort of embarrassing, I have to admit, because it's so obvious to me now in looking back, but it's shocked. I don't know if any of you are shocked that it takes basically three times uh, the length of what you're going to be putting into the movie set in, in pre-production, if not more. And there are certain people out there that are so sold on the fact that you spend as long a period of time in pre-production as you can so that you don't waste one dime in production. Production can shine, it can sparkle if you really maximize pre-production. Most of us are just like, let's get to the production. Come on, guys. What are we doing? And the same is true for a few single people in here. Let's get to the production. Instead of recognizing, it's like, whoa, 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 slow down. We need some good pre-production in here. There is a season that we need to cultivate right now very proactively. And if we do, production can go amazing. And if that goes amazing, guess what? Then if you keep that momentum going into post... You have something special, 
something epic, something grand, something majestic. So let's give an illustration in Scripture. David and Goliath and the three zones of triumph. Now, the real production of this, the real moment in the story is that sling and the the stone flying, lodging in Goliath's head and then he topples, right? Yeah, that's a great movie right there. We're standing, standing ovation, tears streaming down our face like, oh, that's great, epic, majestic, triumphant. However, to get to that moment, you know that there was a lot that was invested into this young man. For him to be ready for the cameras to roll and capture that exact moment, there was a lot that took place. And what's interesting is if everything stalls right then, imagine Goliath falls and we're like, yeah, and then David's life peters out and falls to pieces. You see, he's not the legendary character, even if he takes down Goliath. You know, there's a lot of legendary characters in scripture that start well and finish bad. You know, I, uh, Jehu, who is going to basically trample over Jezebel, and we're like, yeah, it's like one of these triumphant moments in movie history. We're like, yeah, get her. You know, the bad guy goes down, and if you just credits roll at that exact moment, you're like, oh, this is so satisfying. The problem is the credits didn't roll at that time, and Jehu falls to pieces, and he's not remembered as a man who did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. He's one of the bad kings of Israel. And Solomon. Solomon is going to start out and we're all like wanting to be Solomon. Like, I love this guy. Solomon, he's the wise guy on earth. I mean, he's just so, look at his wealth. I mean, he has all, first of all, some of the guys and you're like, all these women, you know, this is a really good setup. He went south because of all the women, if you want to say it that way. He didn't turn out like God intended him to. You see, you can start out well and you can have your grand moments with the cameras rolling and still peter out. What we desire as believers is pre, pro, and post to all be excellent. But to do that, we need serious help. We need to learn how this thing works. So with David, I call it sting, sling, and king. You see, the sting, the sting of humility, the sting of lowliness, being a shepherd, there's no lower place in all of the culture than to do what David was doing. And yet he's literally anointed king. Isn't that the funniest thing? There's no higher position in the culture but that. But for him to be a great king, what did he need to do? He needed to learn how to walk in the sting. And he did. I mean, it's truly a remarkable thing to study the pre-production of David and to see what was necessary. And I always, you know, if it's a movie, it's building up to that moment and everything that's happening in that flow is hard. It's low. He wasn't even invited to the king anointing party. He was totally overlooked. And then even after he was anointed king, get this, he was sent back to the sheep. Obviously, uh, his dad and brothers didn't think very highly of the kooky Samuel and his choice. Send him back. He was just anointed as king. He is your king. Bend your knee. No, David, go back to the sheep. He's even serving and playing the harp for the guy who was rejected. That's his seat, but he's playing and serving him, having javelins thrown at him. And then when the battle comes to town and his brothers are all sent to the war, guess where he's sent? To take care of the sheep. The greatest warrior in all of Israel, arguably, was David at that exact time. And he is sent to the lowest position when everyone else 
is fighting a battle for their country, looking like heroes. And I still picture this, where some runner comes to David, he's tending to the sheep, says, your father Jesse wants you, David. I think he might want to send you to the battlefront. And you could just imagine the moment. It's like David's been waiting for this. He's just so excited for the cameras to start rolling. It's like, what is all this worth? Why have I gone through all this? And so he runs to his father, and it's the final test. This is what makes us who we are as believers. It's this final test. Sometimes we crumble before it. He's like, Father, you called for me? Uh, yes, David, uh, thank you for coming. Are you going to send me to the battle? He could, he could tell. Jesse could, could read David's face. It's like, I am, but I'm sending you there with bread and cheese to check on your brother. Could you imagine that moment? And here's what you need to learn. Yes, Father. The yes, Father, in that pre-production is of the utmost importance for when the cameras roll. Because this boy was prepared for the production. But at, there are times when you will feel so small. You will feel so little. You will feel overlooked. God, why have you done all this? Why do I have this suffering? Why do I have these trials? And sometimes he's silent in the response. And that's when you say, yes, Father. Because those cameras will roll. But the question is, are you ready for them to roll? Sling, of course, we know what that means. <laughs> you know, right in the, in the Goliath's forehead. But then the king season. This is just as much of a test as the sting season. And for those of us that know the biblical account well, we know that David didn't do it perfectly. And yet, in hindsight, in the wholeness of his life, he's the great hero of the Old Testament, if you want to say it that way. For most of us in here, he's our favorite guy. Not because he was perfect, but because he still responded to his imperfections perfectly. And there's something beautiful about that testimony. He's not the Messiah, but he pointed us to the Messiah in a beautiful, profound way. What's the good of defeating Goliath only to forsake the sacred momentum. Now this is a term, the reason I put it in quotes, sacred momentum in quotes, is because this is a term that Leslie and I have used for years of our life. It's hard to describe, but if any of you are artists or uh, creatives, you, you would probably understand what sacred momentum is. So I, Leslie and I write books, right? So when you're writing a book, you get into the mind of the book, the flow of the book, the message of the book, and if you take a break from that, and step away for a week, you know the only way to get back into that sacred momentum is literally to read your whole book again and to saturate in it again. It is, and it's a pain in the neck, especially when it's a long book. It's like, are you serious? I need to read 280 pages just to write the final chapter again? Yeah, you do, because it's a sacred momentum. Well, do you know there's a sacred momentum to the spiritual life? There's a sacred momentum to everything that God is building. And so, for instance, on a film set, when you have done the pre-production, you do the production, you actually need to follow that up and stay in the project to keep your mind on the project of all of your thoughts. There needs to be a debriefing process. There needs to be in the editorial, you need to keep that mind going. You can't detach from it. Well, in your spiritual life, have you ever had it where God speaks something to you and you have this thrill in your soul and a sense of calling? But then you get distracted with something because the devil loves to distract us and you actually lose sight of that which you spent all that time pre-producing and maybe even producing, and then it falls flat, and 
you ended up never bringing it to the screen. And the world was not impacted by what God was starting. Leslie and I refer to that as miscarriage. Now, it's not a physical miscarriage. It's a spiritual miscarriage of something God was bringing to full term, but it lost its life somewhere along the way. And that is an important thing for us to remember is it's not just the pre and it's not just the pro, it's the post. It's the whole thing that matters. Sacred momentum, continuing in the stride of the Holy Spirit's working and treating that momentum as priceless, as precious. So one of the things I'll say, for instance, in Ellerslie, we've had many micro revivals here where everything will shut down and students will just be on their faces sometimes for days. I mean, it's just profound, some of the things that have happened on this campus and in this room. And yet, one of, one of the things that I'll oftentimes say in that time is this is a sacred momentum and let's not take it for granted. And so if you were a sailboat, what would you do if the wind was blowing? You'd keep your sail up. And that's what I say to everyone. So keep your sail up, catching the wind. Because you can never presume upon wind. Catch it. The principle of triumphant marriage, it's a matter of sacred momentum. So you're going to notice the pre, the pro, and the post in marriage as well. Win the heart, vow, and then cherish the heart. I remember this one man before I was married, he made this statement, and he said, uh, so have you ever heard that uh, romance dies after the honeymoon? And you know, I don't know if he was like trying to poke at me, sort of like, I hear that you're in love, Eric. And I said, yeah, I'm not too excited about that statement. In fact, it's sort of like get thee behind me Satan uh, sort of statement. And he said, that's the right attitude, Eric. Uh, He said, it doesn't need to die. I had never in my life had anyone say that up to that point. It doesn't need to die. However, you need to recognize that it's a different part. It's a different way in which you're approaching someone. Because if you think that that, that post-marriage, if I could use that term, he didn't use that term, but after marriage is the same as before marriage, you miss it. You're trying to recreate something that is a very special thing before marriage, and that's what we could call winning the heart. Winning the heart of someone is such a unique experience. Any of us that have gone through it, no. Very, very special. But then when you get married, you're like, it doesn't feel the same. I, we don't, you, because you've already won the heart. You made a vow. You're like, till death parts us, right? So then some people just fall to pieces, burp and scratch their way through the marriage. Like, oh, well, you can't divorce me because you you made a vow. It's a covenant. Remember, in the kingdom of heaven, divorce is bad. And so you just sort of burp and scratch your way through marriage as opposed to recognizing that the beauty needs to continue. This is post-production. Just because you had a great wedding does not mean that it's done. What was that for? Are you serious? You're just going to fall to pieces now? This is when the action starts. Come on, let's bring it to the silver screen. Let's show the world the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he said. He said, you have to switch from winning the heart to cherishing the heart. Cherishing is a different function based on the same premises, but it has a different function. And get this. This is what he said to me. It's just as beautiful, if not more so, than winning the heart. But when you try and recreate pre-marriage romance that is just unique in and of itself, you oftentimes end up going outside of your marriage to try and spark it. Because you're looking for something instead of recognizing that God wants to upgrade you. He wants to do something even more beautiful than what you had before marriage. 
And that's critical. If you don't know that, then your production is not going to shine. Sacred tools of continued cultivation. So if you're going to continue to cultivate a marriage, then here's four things that actually do that. Constant remembrance. You know how hard that is for a guy? There is something about, when you're falling in love, it's very easy to remember the girl you're falling in love with. It's not hard. It's not hard to be thinking about her. In fact, you get in trouble because you're thinking about her too much. I remember I was teaching a, a class uh, up in Michigan, and I, was, I knew I was going to be married the next week, and I had nothing on my brain but Leslie. And so I was supposed to be teaching uh, American history, and instead on my final day of class, we played a game called Leslie. That was the whole day. It was a game called Leslie. And... Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's all I could think about. Every, all these young kids are, are looking at me like, this guy is, I mean, totally cuckoo. I didn't even care. It's like, you can think whatever you want, but this is all, I can't think about American history. American history, who cares about American history? I'm about to be married. However, when you get married, you can begin to be swallowed up with cares of this world. And you can think and take your remembrance and stick it on things that you shouldn't be spent on. It's like you have limited RAM up here. And when you take it and spend it on the things of this earth and the cares of this life, you oftentimes don't have it to spend where it needs to be spent, in the sacred territories, on God, on your, on your marriage, and on your family, which is why so many of us struggle in that post-production season. Active, nourishing, purposeful thoughtfulness. You know, it's, it's easy to go and, and do something special, like grab some flowers, like even go into a field of wildflowers and collect them for someone you're falling in love with. If I were to go through, this would be a terrible question for us men in here. How many of us have frolicked through a, a field of wildflowers to pick wildflowers for our wife in a while, right? It's been a long while for many of us. And yet, there is something that I want us to allow the Spirit of God to stir afresh within us. And that is, I'm not going to allow the young bucks to outpace me in love and romance. Why would I do that? I want to cherish the heart. You see, what I'm going to ultimately do is transfer this into the kingdom of heaven. Because there are things you do in your young years, in your vibrant years of believing, that you oftentimes stop doing as you progress in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that ought not to be. Purposeful thought, thoughtfulness and expressions of affection. What was it? It was, it was that movie Fiddler on the Roof where the guy, you know, said that he loved his wife when they were first married and that if it ever changed, he'd tell her. Uh, but as a result, it's just sort of a placeholder. I love you. I said it way back then, and if it ever changes, I'll let you know. But otherwise, just know I love you, right? As opposed to expressions of affection, for whatever reason, they're important, Right? They matter. There are certain things in life that don't fade. Two plus two equals four. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. These are things you know and you don't need me singing a song to remind you. They're baked deeply into your understanding, but there are other things that need to be constantly rehearsed. The truths of the kingdom of heaven are one of them, but also words of affection and expressions of love are part of it. It's like we need to hear them. We need to have them reinforced. And it's actually a critical dimension of life and to maintain in post-production. How much more so is this three-part process important in our relationship with Jesus Christ? 
a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a matter of sacred momentum. So many of us set down our sail and stop catching the wind, and we end up in the doldrums. We end up in still water, not moving. And we had such vision, and God was doing something rich, which is why many of us have prayed, God, bring me back to that place I was at such and such a juncture in my life. What what do we mean by that? It was a place where our sail was up and wind was gusting into it, and we were moving. We felt that closeness, that intimacy with God. We had a desire for the lost around us that they would know Jesus. There was something very special. We cared about people deeply. We would pray and we would actually weep over people in their situations. Like, what? What happened to me? Why am I so hard-hearted now? God! You see, we have lost something, and that isn't supposed to be lost. Now, if it is lost, God wants to bring it back. That's another important element of this message. If, if you find yourself just like David, staying home from the battle when, in the season when kings go forth to battle, and he stays back and gets into some trouble, right? What should you do? You should repent, You should regain that first love. You should go back to first things. But a relationship with Jesus Christ is a pre, a pro, and a post. You know, it's interesting, but everything in us, the Spirit of God is going to work in us in a pre-way, if you want to say it that way, to prepare us for the time when someone communicates to us the gospel and suddenly we hear it. And it's a key moment in our life, which most of us in here mark And we're like, this is when my life was changed. That's the production, right? That's the big moment. And yet, what's the good of having that transformation and then floundering from there? It's only supposed to get sharper. You know what post-production is doing? It's sharpening. It's beautifying. It's making it majestic. Adding the score behind it, editing, you know, doing the sound, the coloring. Oh, this is when it's getting good. It's supposed to get better. It's not supposed to be left on the editing table. Imagine it like a film project, okay? So uh, we have a movie, and this movie, terrible name, showcasing Jesus Christ to an onlooking world. I don't know if that would succeed in the theaters. Uh, But we could call it something like Glory Bearers or something like that. That might be a better title. But so that you don't miss the point, showcasing Jesus to an onlooking world. Okay, guys, we're producing uh, a film uh, as the church, and it's called Showcasing Jesus Christ to an Onlooking World. All right, let's go. Well, what does it need? It needs a pre, a pro, and a post. So let's look at the pre. It's that unseen and hidden daily devotional investment that is essential to the big moment when the cameras roll. You see, so much of our life is pre-production. So much of our life is being readied by the Holy Spirit for what we are going to do when the cameras roll. But here's what's funny. We don't know when the cameras are going to roll. We don't know when the moment is going to come. When we're asked to deliver bread and cheese and it's like breaking moment where we're like, oh God, are you ever going to get me out of this shepherd position? I know you have something more, but God, why? Just keep going. One more step. Don't give up now. Don't miscarry. Don't miscarry because you're carrying that bread and cheese to the battlefront, maybe even grumbling under your breath and God's convicting you. He says, rejoice right now. I'm in charge of your life. I know your calling. Let me tend to it. And then right at that moment, David was ready. The question is, are we ready? Are we ready when that person comes out of nowhere on the streets, comes up and spits in our face and says, you're a Christian? You know that that's our moment? Camera's rolling, roll them. You know, and, and everyone stops on the street and they're looking back at the Christian. 
to see what the Christian is going to do. I mean, you have spittle on your face. You've been publicly mocked and humiliated. What are you going to do? Are you ready for this moment? You see, this is when Christianity is demonstrated. This is when the impact is made. It's being captured. What's the term, Rebecca? It's print. Print, that means the director really likes that, that shot. That, that's going to go in the final. Right there. That, that was really good. Print it. Is that what's going to happen in your life? And there's so many moments like this in our life. However, it's that hidden life that no one sees that actually prepares us for this. It's your time in communion with the living God. It's your time of prayer when no one can pat you on the back and say, you really have a good prayer life. It's your time of investing yourself in his word and knowing him through his word. Even though no one says, well, you got a good grade on that biblical studies test. There's no public applause for the stuff that truly prepares us. And if you get that applause, it's probably only decreasing your potential chances of succeeding in the pro. You see, God is establishing something on the backside of the wilderness for us. He's bringing us into a a shepherding field where we have to be broken. We have to learn the low life. We have to learn to take the lowest seat at the table. And this is the stuff that is preparing us to shine on the screen. When it comes to the public demonstration, we have to be ready. But if we're going to be ready, we need to allow God to work in us now when no one else sees. Pro, the big moment when the cameras actually roll. It's the reveal. It's the time of proving all that the pre has accomplished in you. Now, again, not being well-groomed in filmmaking... I now know this, but I didn't know this before, but a crew knows if the pre-production was done well. A crew can feel it in the air. It's obvious in 10,000 different micro ways. And so as a result, so will the world know if we've been prepared. God knows already. He knows if we're really prepared for these things. And yet our desire in this room, I guarantee you, every one of us wants to be ready. We want to be ready to show Jesus Post, the diligent continuance in sanctification, not growing weary in well-doing, but finishing strong. And there is a lot of us in here that understand the ache right here. Because you've had your moments where you've shined on screen. And print, you have it. It's real. Just like Jehu. But you need to tend to the very things that cultivated that readiness. You need to keep doing those things. Keep doing the basic things. Keep shepherding the sheep. I'm a king now. Keep shepherding. Don't ever elevate yourself from being that shepherd even though you have a higher role in society. Even though you have a more magnanimous position that can stand out. You keep doing the first things that made you strong to stand against Goliath. So that when you are a king, you can be a king like Jesus. The film project. So here's a a few different options for us. We'll we'll make a few films together. All bad titles, by the way. Uh, But the movie, Windchuck to Christ. Again, I'm not sure that's going to be very successful at the box office. But Windchuck to Christ. I always use Chuck as my sort of symbol character. There's probably a Chuck in here that's sort of like, excuse me. But... Chuck is always the guy down the street uh, in in all my illustrations. But uh, Chuck needs Jesus, okay? So if Chuck is going to find Jesus, and God wants to use me in that process, we know that the production, the big moment, is going to be when Chuck 
humbles himself, repents, and believes, right? That, oh, that's a huge moment. However, to get to that moment, you know that God needs to do something in me? There's some pre-production in this. How about my readiness? How about God working in me in my private life to even cause me to think about Chuck, to pray for Chuck? You see, I'm naturally selfish. Selfish. I'm not going to think about Chuck. I'm going to think about me. But God says, I want you, Eric, to begin to think about Chuck, to be ready for Chuck, to be able to invest in Chuck. So God is working on me. Pre-production is inside of Eric Ludi, not only inside of Chuck. God is doing what he's doing in Chuck, but there could be all sorts of things. Like, it could be a thousand different things that I'm going to do in front of Chuck or for Chuck. Maybe Chuck's my, you know, it works with me at, at the business, right? And so maybe I'm finding ways to serve him, to speak into his life, to encourage him, to introduce him to what I represent. I'm a Christian. But to do it in such a way that actually is pre-production in Chuck's soul so that when I'm able to lead Chuck to Christ, oh, that's an exciting moment. Print. And yet, after that, post-production is just as important. In other words, just as I serve Chuck, if I'm just serving Chuck to get him to pray a prayer and then I abandon Chuck and I go, next? Well, what have I done? I've miscarried something very, very significant. I must still tend to Chuck, chill, still pray for Chuck, still do the same things I did before. If I was a servant to Chuck before, why wouldn't I continue to be a servant to Chuck? You see, he needs to now be mentored in how to live his life. It's called discipleship. And so as a result, pre- Pro and post. Oh, guys, this is a good one. This is a good movie. The movie Bill Ellersley. Terrible title again. I should have really thought up some good titles for these because some of you are like, I'm not going to see that in the theaters. But it would be good, guys, okay? This is just a working title. That's what it's called. You can still change it, right? But Bill Ellersley. You know that Ellersley had a massive pre-production. Massive. That's why you think if anyone should understand pre-production, it would be Eric Ludi. 17 years of pre-production. Mm -hmm. The vision for Ellerslie was 17 years before the first banquet night we had here in this room. And it was hard fought. And there were so many times where I just wanted to let go of it and say, God, get that out of my mind, get that out of my heart, because it's too painful realizing it's never going to happen, right? This is how, but he kept giving it back to me. It's like prayer for 17 years. You want to know how special the pro was? The production was when we arrive on the first banquet night, and this room is it's decorated up, it was gorgeous, beautiful, and I walk up onto stage. Uh, by the way, as, as legend has it, Hudson, who was five, walks up onto stage with me. He'd never done that in any of my speaking events before, but he walks up onto stage with me, and I could not speak. It was so beautiful. And it's like God was reminding me of all he did in 17 years to bring this about. And all I did was cry up here for a long period of time. Hudson was standing next to me, looking up at me, watching me cry on stage. And he looks out at the crowd and goes. <laughs> and yet, it's like, print? Okay, that was amazing. That's great. This is good. Yeah, and the battle had just begun. What has been needed to continue in that beauty is all-out war. And so as a result, I don't want any of us to think that the end is just that moment where the credits start rising, because that's what you would do. If you were showing the story of Ellerslie, you'd sort of want to have the banquet night and then have the credits go and go, oh, what a great movie. However, the battle has just begun. Isn't it funny that credits don't roll at the right times for us? It's like, oh, we got the next scene, and the next scene is another trial. 
You don't want to end a movie on a trial, so you have to keep going. And yet God has proven faithful. And that is why I'm so sensitive to the fact that continuation, perseverance, persistence is just as important as the right pre-production. A film project, the movie is a world-class marriage. There is nothing quite like having a great foundation, having a great marriage, and then fall into pieces. There is not one person in here that ever plans for divorce. None. There isn't anyone that says, I would like to have a great marriage and then get divorced. Every single person. You know that when George Barna, this is probably about 20-some years ago, so it's dated information, right? But George Barna queried the younger generation and asked them for their number one desire in life. This is extraordinary. I would have never guessed it, okay, even at the time. But they wanted to be married to one person for a lifetime. That was the number one desire of the generation that we would have said is going to hell in a handbasket, right? They wanted to be married to one person for a lifetime. George Barna then asked a follow-up question. Do you believe that's possible? And almost all of them said no. Talk about a disillusioned generation. The very thing that for whatever reason they yearn for, they also don't believe they can have. This is where we come in. There is something that God desires to do in us to once again resemble the kingdom of heaven, to produce something that the world can stand back and say, that's what I want. And then we should be equipped to help them find it. But if we haven't found it, do you understand how hard that is to pass it on? When, when the Supreme Court altered the definition of marriage in our country, a lot of Christians were really upset. And it's not that I was happy about it, okay? It was just a signal of a demise of culture, right? However, non-Christians will behave as non-Christians. I fully expect it. So I wasn't... My response was probably shocking to the Christians because I, I said, I feel like we forsook our voice in marriage a long time ago when we started having a higher divorce rate amongst Christians than, than non-believers. So I really am not shocked by this. This is just the natural progression of a culture that has been forsaken. Now, I don't want it. I don't want to see our culture turned over to the wolves. What I want is to see us as the church transformed, where we're not falling to pieces after the wedding day or falling to pieces after the altar where we pray our prayer to Jesus, but we thrive. We are ready for triumph, not ready for falling to pieces, falling apart, disintegration. The unique question, this might sound familiar, my good friend did all the purity stuff right prior to his wedding, but his marriage totally stinks. How do you explain that to all of us single folk? So you see that indirectly I'm sort of answering that question. I'm saying that there's more to pre-production than is necessary, than that most of us think. We read a book or we, you know, True Love Waits comes to town and, and we're saying, okay, what I need to do is not do these uh, sexual things before marriage. And if I do that, then I should have a great marriage. And ironically, there are many people in the Christian world that would nod along and say, yeah, that's exactly right. And I would say, whoa, 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 whoa. That isn't the great pre-production that is needed. You want to have a great marriage, you have to do more than have physical abstinence in your life. That isn't the recipe for a great marriage. I'm not going to throw it out and say, oh, well, that doesn't matter. No, it's an ingredient. Just like if you were to ask me for the ingredient for a loaf, the recipe for a loaf of bread, I'm not going to say salt. If you just have salt, you have great bread. That would be salt, and it wouldn't be great bread, 
right? Nothing wrong with salt, though. Don't throw out the salt. We need that salt. However, it's a part of a recipe. And unfortunately, the Christian world has become so fixated on one dimension or one attribute of readiness that we're actually not ready because we have elevated one attribute. I don't want to say too high, but maybe that would be the description. Too high to the diminishment of other attributes that cater to a wonderful, lifelong, heaven-revealing marriage. So a world-class marriage, what is the pre? Now, this is, I, I ran out of room on my screen, right? So there could be a lot more to this, but this will at least whet your appetite. Integrity of mind, purity of body, okay? That's, that, that's even more description than what most of us have even been after, right, in the, in the top left. Integrity of mind, learning how to control your thoughts. When a thought comes that is antagonistic to the kingdom of heaven, you need to know how to say no to it. You need to know how to take every thought captive. This is so important in marriage. This is so important in success. Purity of body, well, that could mean <clears throat> brushing your teeth. It could mean putting on deodorant. By the way, that will really help you in marriage as well. However, it also could mean abstaining at the right time, learning self-control of the physical body, that your body doesn't control you. Actually, not just important in pre-marriage, but important in marriage. Isn't that an irony? You see, these are attributes or functions or behaviors that need to be cultivated, and if they're not cultivated, well, then you find yourself falling apart in marriage. A lot of young Christians have a singular notion about what marriage is. It's a license to enjoy someone physically. Marriage, for those of us that have been married uh, a while, know very well that marriage is so much more than enjoying someone physically. In fact, the physical engagement in marriage is itsy-bitsy in comparative to the rest of marriage, which is really where marriage is found. The physical dimension is wonderful, but it's a part. It's not the whole. So how do we prepare for it? Set a partness of life. You see, if you are engaging in worldliness on a daily basis in your thoughts, in your, in your behavior, in your socialization, then you bring in a worldly mentality into your marriage, which will not sustain a great marriage. It just will not. Faith, not fear. If you're cultivating anxiety and fear and fretting and foreboding in your pre-marriage years, you bring that, you truck that into marriage, it will create a breakdown. It does not mean that any of these cannot be overcome in marriage. It's just that if you're going to do it right, every single one of us would agree, why wouldn't you do this before you get married? Especially if you knew you could. Listening skills. Boy, that would be a nice feature to bring to some marriages today. Have you ever had it where you're talking to someone and you realize they're really not listening to you? In fact, they're formulating what they're going to say. And then that's, women are famous for doing this. Wives are famous for doing this. Did you even hear what I said? Of course, of course I heard what you said. How I'm offended that you would think I didn't. What did I say? Well, you, you, you said something you know, about the kids and, and that you weren't listening. I, I was too. Oh, it's terrible. Terrible when you get caught doing that, right? Listening skills. It's actually important to pre-produce that, to actually have these skills in place so that when you get married, you are a listener. More than a talker, you learn to listen. Sleeping skills. Believe it or not, those have impact. Okay, we could go back to the days of uh, Lucy and, who, who is Lucy's uh, husband? Ricky. Lucy and Ricky and have two twin beds. 
you know what? It would really solve some problems because some people get married and immediately roll over with all the covers and they do this mummy thing, right? And then the other spouse is like, uh, what in the world in the middle of the night? And then they start yanking and it becomes a yanking relationship. Other people kick. They don't realize they kick because they've never thought about it. In the middle of the night, poof. The other spouse is offended all night long, thinking that was on purpose. I know it. They're trying to act like they're snoring right now, but they really did that on purpose. There's all sorts of things. I, I remember hearing that I snored when I was young. You never like to hear that. For some reason, when, you hear, when someone tells you, it's usually not kind in the way they do it either. It's like, you were snoring last night, right? It's one of those things. It was my brother that told me. So I was like, Totally sensitized to this. So I, I remember studying it and figuring out if there's a way to not snore, which is not the easiest thing, okay? And if someone said, well, if you sleep on your side, you don't usually snore. I like sleeping on my back, but I literally started training, sleeping on my side and not moving all night long. And I did that before I got married. Isn't that one of the weirdest thoughts to actually sleep train before you get married, lest you turn into the mummy or the kicker or the snorer that drives your spouse crazy and, you know, the twin beds don't solve some of these issues, right? I mean, you could, you could get out of the bed and hop into the other one and still do some kicking, right? And so you have to actually train. I, mean, I know some of you are like, I've never heard that statement in my life. Honorable action. There is, there is behavior that edifies and strengthens. And it's not just like pulling the chair out for someone or opening the door, but it is. It includes that. It's the small things in life, as I've oftentimes said. It's, it's when you borrow the supermarket's uh, shopping cart, you return it. You treat it as a borrowed item, as it belongs to someone else, and they have so uh, you know, beautifully allowed you to use it. Well, then treat it as a borrowed item. The honorable action all around. How you handle the... Uh, the, the toilet paper, you know, do you turn it this way, this way? Here's what you do. You go to your spouse and you say, which way do you prefer it? See? The toilet seat. You guys ever notice that there's uh, fracases over toilet seats? Leslie is not just sensitive to a toilet seat, because my, my mom said, you put the, the sitting seat down, right? When you leave, because that's how you honor a girl. It goes far beyond that, because Leslie thinks toilet water is disgusting. So I have to put the lid down, too. I, w I wasn't trained for that. I was only trained for the seat. I thought I was all ready for marriage, and then I found out I had to put the lid down, too. It's a whole other level of training, guys. Love and care for family. You see, you practice for your marriage on your first family. The way a, man tr a young boy treats his mother is setting a pattern in place for how he treats the next number one woman in his life. How he treats his sisters is a critical pattern setter. So if... A young person takes these things seriously in pre-production. They step into marriage with strength the way a girl treats her dad, even if he's not an easy guy to deal with, but he, she can still show respect and honor and protect him and dignify him. Thoughtfulness. You see, thoughtfulness is a behavior trait, which means you're taking time during the day to think about others. And in marriage, that's critical. And it's so easy to lose these things. It's easy to cultivate some of these things in the peak of romantic relationship. But if it's not a skill that is developed, it will fade. Forgiveness, one of the most important functions in every marriage. And I could say also not just forgiveness like saying, hey, uh, I, I forgive you, but also will you forgive me? It's the function of being forgive, forgiving and forgivable. Humility, taking the lowest seat. 
Jesus always first. You cultivate that. It's not the spouse first. It's not me first. Because if you take me first into marriage, it comes out very quickly. If you take spouse first, hey, you worship your spouse, you'll do anything for your spouse, and you don't have Jesus first, it still will ruin a marriage. Isn't that ironic? You can't put child first. You put Jesus first. Jesus first is an attribute, a function of the Christian life that needs to be in pre-production. All of these can be cultivated in the marriage, even if you don't have them. I don't want to discourage any of you that didn't have these things. I just want to say, if you are in a single season of your life, soak it up. Take advantage of this season. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. You see, there are things that will hinder your life. And as a husband, if he hasn't trained in treating a woman in an understanding way, it actually hinders his spiritual life. That's what we don't want. Remember, we want the blessing that comes with life, not that which breaks down our life. Pre, some words that go with the pre-production side of our life. Waiting, trusting, patience. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. One of the ways that I've oftentimes said it is you need to cultivate this in your pre-marriage relationship of actually treating your spouse as more important than you. You're like, I haven't even met my spouse. I know. But treat them as more important than you. And so your decision-making on a functional level, treat it as if it matters to your spouse. Do what would be honorable to your spouse. If your spouse was in the room with you right now, your future spouse, you haven't even met them yet, but if they could watch you, they could watch you interact with the opposite sex, they could watch you in private and how you're handling your life. Do they feel honored and cared for? Are you treating them as more important than you or are you just living for self? And if you cultivate that pattern in your pre-years, you can't help but succeed in both the production and the post-production. Philippians 2, 5 through 9, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. We got some pre-production going on, guys. We have a God who's humbling himself. You see, he's preparing for a marriage, a marriage feast, but he is going to remove his outer garment, bend his knee, and wash his bride's feet. He's coming as a servant. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Do you see the blessing that comes as a result? There is something that happens when the pre-production is done right. You see the grandeur of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. You see it. It comes onto the screen and God says, print it. That's it right there. You see, but what was done before that is what made it successful. Pro, demonstration, readiness, obedience. This is what we want to be ready for, guys. We don't know when the cameras are going to roll in the Christian life. And as a result, we want to be ready. We want to be ready for obedience. We want to be ready for triumph. Post, the words that could go with it are perseverance, continuance. Okay, what you've done, keep doing Go back to those first things that you, you once did. Remember when he was your first love? Go back to that. Return to first things. 
Continue to persist and continue in what you know to do. Don't stop being thoughtful. Don't stop those words and those phrases of expressions of adoration and affection. Keep doing them. Keep doing those things. Let's keep fanning this fire that's going out into flame. This is what God desires for all of us, not just in our romantic relationships, but our relationship with him. Philippians 2, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this line, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So I'm giving you the secret now of how this is done, because a lot of us are measuring ourselves going, boy, I stink at this. However, the key is that you give yourself to God and say, God, I'm in a pre-production season. I need you to help me with it. God, I'm at the day of my wedding, and I really want this to shine for you. I want you to be my guest of honor. God, I'm now married, and I'm scared to death about it. I have no idea how to do this right, but I know you do. So here I am. Fill me. You see, it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he that called you who also will do it. God is not just setting a perfect pattern for pre, pro, and post and saying, figure it out. He's saying, Eric, or you could put your name in there, I can do this. I'm faithful. I will do it for you, but you need to surrender to me and let me have your life. Let me have these years right now before you're married. Let me have them. I know you have an agenda and I know you have desires. Would you give those to me and let me take over? Okay, Eric, I know you're excited for this wedding day, but could you give it to me? Let me do with it what only I could do. Let me turn water into wine. Let me do something exceeding and abundantly beyond all you could ask or think. But to do that, Eric, I need your life. I need you to give it to me. Okay, Eric, I know you have dreams and desires for your family, for your marriage, and you have thoughts of your career and all these things, but could you surrender all those things to me? Because I have called you and I will also do it if you will allow me to have you. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Guys, we're going to labor in vain if we try and do this on our own. The Pharisees did it absence, absent of humility and dependence and trust. They had all the external husk and they missed the power to do it. May we not have all the truth and all the theology and miss the fact that he is the one that performs the grand life. He is the one that is supposed to rule in pre, pro, and post. So the secret for the pre, the pro, and the post, he must do it. You're a glove, and a glove apart from a hand is a rather pathetic thing. And God, throughout Scripture, is going to make it clear Apart from me, you can't do it. You can do nothing. However, with me, nothing shall be impossible for you. So if we were to surrender ourselves as a glove made in the image of a hand surrenders to the true source of power and ability, and if we submit to him afresh today and say, God, I'm not doing this right, but I know you can. So here I am, dependent upon you, and we allow ourselves to slide upon his and over his power and his ability. His grace is what it's called in Scripture. He promises to do it. 
Father, here we are, dependent upon you, acknowledging that we desire a very specific outcome in our life, an outcome that you have defined for us, that you have given us the desire to find. But Lord, we want to acknowledge that we in and of ourselves cannot perform, we cannot function at the level of excellence to reach it. But we do know that you can. Not only did you do it when you lived, but you desire to do it in us and through us now. So here we are, Lord Jesus. I ask that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, and you would comfort us where we need comfort. But don't allow us to leave today the way we arrived. Give us a fresh vision for how this ought to be done. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.